So last year, you may remember uh, at the Christmas Eve service, I spoke on uh, 1 John 3, 1, which is, Behold, what manner of love is this? And I was talking about how we have these nativity scenes, and we have the manger, and baby Jesus in the manger, and you have Mary and Joseph, and the shepherds, and the animals, and, and the angels, and they're all standing around looking at baby Jesus in the manger. And the message was, Behold, what manner of love is this? That there was a moment in time when we could actually, as humanity, physically see the amount of love that God had for us. Because his love could be beheld, it could be looked at in the person of Jesus Christ. And you could actually see the love of God. And so at Christmas, that's the opportunity we have. Every time you sort of go through town or on your mantle or sitting on your your end table, everybody's got those nativity scenes out. And we can remember at Christmas, this is the time when we can actually behold the love of God. We can behold that there was a moment in time when we could literally see the nature of God's love for us in the physical person of Jesus, the Messiah, come from heaven. He came from the presence of God who exists unbound by our universe. He exists unbound by creation, outside of everything that we can see and perceive and and conceive of. God came from outside, didn't come from the stars. He didn't come from the sky. He came from outside the universe into our creation. So that we can see his love. He became a natural human, bound by flesh and contained in time and space for a moment for us. And I, I kept meditating on this reality and I realized we had to go deeper into this idea of beholding the manner of God's love. That this is the Christmas miracle, that God would humble himself to come to us in our own human nature. And we don't dare pass quickly over that awesome reality. And as you go Christmas after Christmas, and year after year, and sermon after sermon, and you think of Emmanuel, God with us, and the baby Jesus, and yes, it's nice and warm fuzzies. But, but we can't go over this quickly. The miracle that is taking place, the miracles that God had to do to get himself into our body is incredible. The miracle of God's desire to reunite his creation to himself, the miracle that is God's initiative to invade our world, to rescue us, even at the same time as we're running away from God. This is all what's contained in the reality of Messiah, Jesus, coming to us. It's God's action. It's God's movement towards us. His breaking it into our world in the most unexpected way possible to get our attention so that he can save us. That's just the tip of the the iceberg of the miracle of what we call the incarnation, of God becoming man of Christ becoming flesh. And so the early church actually struggled with the number and the depth of the miracles that are wrapped up in the baby Jesus for nearly 400 years before it took 400 years for the church to come up with a statement that everybody could sort of agree made some sense of what was going on in the person of Jesus Christ. They couldn't even make sense of it. How was Jesus man and God at the same time? How was he omnipotent and yet tired? How was he all-knowing and yet uncertain? How was he human but sinless? And all the many other seeming paradoxes of his nature, which we're going to look at this morning, of the miracle of baby Jesus, that we don't overlook it, that we carefully, thoughtfully walk through these realities and gain an appreciation of the miracle that God worked in the incarnation. The miracle of what it means for Messiah to come as Lord in human flesh. 
And it's not something trivial. It's not something simple. Every aspect of the nature of Christ is miraculous and serves a specific purpose in his mission to rescue us. Everything of who Jesus was was a miracle for it to happen. And everything of who he was was done deliberately to save us and for to accomplish his mission of redeeming humanity. And so there's ways we can get it wrong. There's ways that, that parts of the church did get the incarnation wrong for quite a while, for hundreds of years. They just thought about it wrongly. And so we do want to pull out and we want to behold. We want to look at the glory in everything that is miraculous about the nature of our Jesus. And at the same time, we do that. We want to avoid error or we want to avoid inventing our own ideas about what we think it means and giving glory to what is untrue or what diminishes his miraculous nature. So if you just bear with me, that's what this morning is about, is to really look deeply at the miracle of what it means that God should become man. That at this time, this season at Christmas, that we just understand the miracle of baby Jesus, of the incarnation, of Emmanuel, of God with us. And so the first thing is the evidence and the importance of the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus was fully man. He was virgin born. He had a human mother, a human body, a a body that came with weaknesses and limitations. He grew from a baby to, you know, mid-30s, maybe 33, 34 years old. He learned things as an ordinary child learned. It says in Luke 2, 52, it says that he increased in wisdom. So he had to learn his Hebrew alphabet. He had to learn how to play soccer or whatever it is that they play when they're little kids, you know. And so he grew as a baby, and people around him saw him learning. He was subject to his parents. He knows what it's like to have parents who are telling him to take out the trash and, you know, come to dinner on time and, you know, wash your hands before you eat. He was just a normal human boy and went through all of those experiences that we grew up with and went through. He grew tired. It says that he wearied of his journey. He felt he said he was troubled in his spirit. You remember last Easter, I, I preached on this, how, it's, how he spoke as he was praying to God, and he said, now is my soul troubled, which is literally, now is my soul afraid. He was afraid of what he was going to face. Like any man would, knowing the crucifixion is coming, knowing that the sins of the world would be put on him, his soul was afraid, and he feared for what was coming. Jesus wept. He prayed with cries and with tears, it says in Hebrews. He hungered. He was hungry. He was thirsty as he journeyed. And people around him saw him only as a man. In other words, they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? And even his own brothers didn't believe him when he testified of God as his father. They said, yeah, we grew up with you, Jesus. What are you talking about? You're just our brother. right?" He was human. He was just a normal human boy. It grew, that learned, that was hungry, that was tired, that had parents that he had to obey, that had to understand how the world worked and learn things. And he suffered, maybe most importantly, of all his humanity that we recognize that as a human, he suffered physically and emotionally. He knows what it's like to feel pain. Jesus knows what it's like to grieve. He had loved ones die, maybe even when he was young. You ever wonder what happened to Joseph after Jesus was 12 years old in the temple and they had to go back to find him because his parents forgot him? His parents were like me and Wendy, I guess. Um, 
You know, they, he's 12 years old and they forget him and they, they're traveling. He's like, where's Jesus? Oh yeah, he's back at the temple. So they go back, Mary and Joseph go back and they find him. And we don't hear about Joseph anymore. What happened to Joseph? And at the cross, at the end of his ministry, he says to John, John, take care of my mother. Joseph's gone. Probably, most likely, his father died when he was pretty young. Jesus suffered. He knows what it is to lose a parent. He knows what it is to lose loved ones. His cousin, John the Baptist, killed, killed by the king, you know, three months before his own death. Jesus suffered. He knows pain. He knows grieving. He had bad days. He had times when it was hard to obey and act rightly. He had days, I can guarantee you, when he just felt like he didn't want to be obedient and he didn't want to obey and he didn't want to rock in righteousness. That was his human body that he had to wrestle with. He was tempted by Satan. He knows temptation and yet he did not sin. His importance of his humanity. And there's this thing called, he can't, God, Jesus can't, this is where the church got it wrong for a while. Jesus can't just seem to be human. He has to be human. He can't just seem to be like a man. And this is docetism, which I'm going to talk about in a, in a minute, where he, where he just appeared to be a man. He has to be a man. Why is it important that he has to be a man? Because he has to be representative of mankind. He has to obey God. He has to live a life of obedience on our behalf. Romans 5, 18 to 19 says, that Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live with the same failings, with the same weakness, with the same temptation. Jesus, as a human, lived the life of obedience that it was impossible for us to live so that then he could be a substitute. Secondly, to be a substitute to die for our sin in our place. Hebrews 2, 16 to 17 says that. He had to be a man, truly a man, to appease the wrath of God and to be our proper substitute. Without the humanity of Christ, there is no salvation. And to be our example, thirdly, to be our example, to follow in life. 1 John 2.6 says that we ought to walk as he walked. Or 1 Peter 2.21 says that we are to follow in the steps of Jesus' suffering. Jesus had to be a man as we are a man, had to be human in his nature to be our example, that we could follow him in our human nature. It's no good for us to have um, an angel or to have God himself as our example because we just say, well, we can't do that. We can't do what that guy does because he's God or he's an angel. But Jesus came to be our example as a human to say, you can walk as I walk. And to be the pattern for our redeemed body. 1 Corinthians 15.49 says that we will bear the image of the man from heaven. Jesus came as human nature in humankind to have flesh and bone, to be a body that would die, go into the grave, and then be resurrected and redeemed into the resurrection body, which we talked about was that about eight or nine weeks ago? We talked about the resurrection body that we're going to get. That is still flesh and bone. It's still material, but it's a new redeemed body. And so Jesus had to come and inhabit our human nature so that he could be the pattern of our redeemed body, which we are all going to be inheriting as we go to heaven. And then fifthly, to be our sympathetic high priest, to sympathize with us. Hebrews 2.18 says that, Jesus understands our weakness. Jesus knows what it's like to go through every aspect of our life, as I already talked about. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to grieve. He knows what it's like to be sick. He knows what it's like to hurt. He knows what it's like to not even be good looking, it says in Isaiah, that he was humble and nothing great to look at. You know, he knows what it's like to go through life that way. He's our sympathetic high priest. And finally, to be our mediator, to be the one mediator between God and man. A mediator is someone who stands between two 
things and represents them to each other. And so Jesus is able to be our mediator to God because he's human. So God looks at Jesus and he sees humanity, he sees human nature. And so Jesus is able to mediate human humanity and humankind to God. And then he's able to mediate God to us. We're able to look and behold the baby Jesus. And he can say, if you've beheld me, you've beheld the Father. Because he can be the mediator of God to man. And so Jesus is this perfect combining of the natures of God and man in a way that he can be our mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that he is the one mediator between God and man. And so he needs the human nature to be our mediator. And Jesus will be a man forever. This is important to keep in mind, that Jesus will bear his human nature forever in his redeemed body as we gain our redeemed bodies. But it says in Luke 24, 39, as he's coming, he says to Thomas, see my hands and see my feet, touch me. See that a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So even after his resurrection, he says, I have flesh and bones. I'm, I'm still human. You can touch me. You can feel me. I'm real. I'm not just a spirit. As God is spirit, I'm human. I'm mankind. I'm nature. And he walked with the people on the road to Emmaus, and they thought that he was a man. And the angel in Acts, as he was ascending to heaven, said that Jesus would return to earth just as you've seen him leave. He's going he's to come back the same way in the same redeemed body. And in Acts 7.56, when Stephen, just before he's being stoned, and he's talking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and he says he saw the heavens open up, and he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Jesus is a man forever. Jesus maintains his human nature. Jesus is Messiah a human savior, and he's Lord, Yahweh the divine. That's the importance of Jesus' humanity. That's the importance of why God had to become man for all those reasons. But then there's the evidence and the importance of the divinity of Jesus. And this is amazing. This is the miracle. This, this is not a man who God just worked through like Moses or like King David. There were lots of men that the Spirit of the Lord fell upon, and lots of men that God worked through, like Moses and like David and like Samson and and many others, and, and women too. There's lots of humans that God used, but that's not who this man is. That's not who Jesus is. This man was God. Eternal, omniscient, omnipotent. How can that be contained in human form? First of all, the evidence is the scripture tells us just really quickly that there's passages that the text just says he's divine. It uses the word theos. It uses the word God for Christ. First John 1, 1, the word was God. John 20, 28, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Romans 9, 5, that he is the God overall. Or Titus 2, 13, that he is our great God and Savior. And Paul calls him God. And Peter calls him God. And even God calls him God. In Hebrews 1, 8, he says, your throne, O God, speaking of Jesus. So the word, the scripture tells us that Jesus was God. And then it also uses the word kyrios or Lord, which is used of Christ. And the word kyrios is used in the Hebrew form. It's used 6,800 times. The word Lord in your translation is probably all capitals. But that word Lord is used to refer to God. And Christ, Jesus uses that word Lord for himself. Luke 2.11 says, a savior is born who is Christ the Lord. But you can just take that statement of the angel's statement to the shepherds. You've got to imagine this. Okay, Jewish shepherds, they know their Bible. They're expecting a Messiah. And so the angels arrive, and they say, unto you a child is born. 
Who is Christ? Or who is the Messiah? Who is the anointed one? And they're saying, yep, we're expecting that Messiah. The Messiah is born. Who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord? What? That's when you get the record scratch. We're expecting a human Messiah. You're telling me that the Messiah is also God? That's what they were saying. He is Christ, the Lord. The Messiah is born. Who's the human Messiah? But he's also God. What an amazing announcement. And we just, we just breeze over that and we sing it and yay, angels are singing. No, it's Christ, the Messiah. They were expecting a human Messiah. They got that part. And he's the Lord. He's God. Wow, what a plan. In Matthew 2, 44, 22, 44, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, that famous text of David, that David said to his Lord, or that in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. Or in Hebrews 10, you, Lord, founded the earth. And, and many more times, this text, the scripture calls him Theos, and it calls him Kyrios. It calls him God, and it calls him Lord. Secondly, he possessed the attributes of divinity. I'll go back to the first one I used of his humanity. He was virgin born. He was virgin born. He had a human mother. That was his humanity. But he was virgin born like nobody else has ever been born because he had a divine father. His father was God. He has a divine father. That's his divinity. That's his God. That's his Godhead there in his in his nature and in his being. He is divine. Secondly, he's ageless. John 8, 58. The Jews even question this. You know, he's talking about Abraham. And, and, and he's talking to the Jews. And they said, you're not even 50 years old. And you say you saw Abraham? I mean, they're, they're putting the pieces together. They're, they're saying, how can you say, how can you be God? You're, you're like 30 years old. You're not even 50 yet. And you're saying you saw Abraham? And he says, I tell you before Abraham, I am. He was ageless. And yet he was only 30. That's what scripture tells us. He's omnipotent. He sustains the universe. Hebrews 1.3, it says the sun is the radiance of his glory. In other words, he's the radiance of God and the representation of his essence of God. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. So Jesus is omnipotent. Jesus is sustaining all things by the power of his word, even while he's contained in human flesh, even while he's asleep. So Jesus is lying there asleep in the boat and the storm is raging. And while he's sleeping and the storm is raging, he's sustaining all things in the universe at the same time. Yes. That's the answer. Yes. He's both tired and sustaining the universe at the same time. He's omniscient. Scripture says that he knows the thoughts of all men. John 2, 24b, it says he knew all people and he did not need anyone to testify about man for he knew what was in man. So here's Jesus who knows everything. He doesn't need anybody to tell him about what people are thinking or about what they're questioning or about what their thoughts are or about what's going on. He knows. He knows their intent. That's why he was able to you know, avoid being captured for a while because he knew what they were thinking and he knew the questions he was going to ask and they knew they were going to lay hands on him. So Jesus would know that and then at the same time he would say, not even the Son of Man knows the hour or the time of the coming. And so how do you reconcile that? That he was limited in his human nature and yet knew all things. And so the example that I have of this is just a faint sort of echo of it is if I was maybe to ask you, um, you know, Graham, uh, where were you at 7 o'clock on Wednesday night? 
See? Caroling. There you go. See? He knows it. Okay, Rebecca knows all things. So he knew it, but he had to bring it to mind. And so in a faint way, I think that's the way it was with Jesus. As human, in his human nature, he only knew what we knew. But he could bring to mind his omnipotence. He could bring to mind at his choosing the things that he needed to know, when he needed to know them. But he, le- he, he would lay those things down to act in his human nature. So he was both omniscient and yet limited in his knowledge at the same time. He was sovereign, the importance of the attributes of his deity. So he's virgin-born, he's deity, he's ageless, he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he knows everything. Fifthly, he's sovereign. He could lay down or take up his life. This is amazing. John 10.18 says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own free will. But the next thing is incredible. I have the authority to lay it down, and I, not God, I have the authority to take it back up again. Jesus, in his human nature and divine nature, he could lay down his life, but then he could take it back up again. He could be involved, he was involved in his own resurrection. He had the power, and he says he has that command from God. I have that authority, I have that command from the Father. I can lay down my life willingly, nobody takes my life, I lay it down. And you know what? I can pick it up again. He's absolutely sovereign over that human body that he has, because he created it. And he created all the laws of nature and how it works. And so he lays down his life and he has the authority to take it back. He's absolutely sovereign. And finally, he's sinless. In order to be a sufficient sacrifice, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. In other words, we needed that high priest mediator. We needed that high priest sacrifice that was sinless. And that's impossible for us in our fallen human nature. God has, and Jesus, in the, in the nature of Jesus, had that perfect sinless nature of what he intended for humanity. And so he could be sinless and was sinless in his divinity to be a sufficient sacrifice. Because a sinful sacrifice would not, would not work. And so I count that towards his attribute of divinity. And he stilled the storm in Matthew 8.26. And it says that he's the Alpha and Omega in Revelations 22.13. The beginning and the end of history. There's no angel that can claim that. There's no angel that can claim what Jesus claims. He has to be God. And there's no man that can claim it either. He's omniscient. We talked about that in Mark 2.8. Right? His, um, his, his presence everywhere. He's everywhere at once. Matthew 18.20. It says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. That's Jesus speaking. He says, I am there with them. And he says in, in Matthew 28, 20, he says, I am with you always until the end of the age. And he's sovereign. In Mark 2, 5 to 7, he says, son, your, your sins are forgiven. And the, and the Pharisees and the Jews around him say, why does this fellow talk like that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? And immortality. He says in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Because he has that authority. To bring himself back to life because of his sovereignty. And it's an indestructible life that goes on forever. Hebrews 7.16 says that he has become a priest, not on the basis of ancestry, but on the basis of an indestructible life. That he is on the right hand of God, in flesh and bone, in a redeemed human body, to be our representative and our high priest. And finally, that he's worthy to be worshipped. 
In Philippians 2, 9 to 11, it says of Jesus, Therefore God has exalted him highly and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so I say all of that to establish first his humanity and then to establish his divinity, so that there's no question that Jesus is God. He's worthy to be worshipped. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He has sovereignty over his life. He has sovereignty over everything. He sustains the universe with his hand. God is, Jesus is God. And finally, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And so how do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile that Jesus is fully man in human nature, and yet Jesus fully possesses all of his divine attributes. How do we think of these things in a way that doesn't abandon anything of the miracle of his nature? Because that's the thing today. I just don't want to think about this wrongly. I want to think about it rightly so that we can give it maximum glory. This is how not to reconcile them. Okay, quickly. Three ways not to reconcile them. That the early church, these are mistakes the early church made in the first 400 years. Jesus did not give up his divinity, the kenosis theory, as it says in Philippians, it doesn't, it's not that he gave up his divinity, but he gave up his status. He gave up his glory in exchange for humility. Jesus did not just put on a human suit. This is called Apollinarianism, okay? AD, about 360 AD. This is almost 400 years after the time of Christ, and they're still talking about this stuff. But it's not just Jesus in a human suit, right? He's not just God in a human body, but possessing still the spirit and the mind of God. Because the problem with that is it's not just our bodies that need to be redeemed. Our minds and our spirit also need to be redeemed. It's no good to us if Jesus is just putting on a human suit and pretending to be a human and not really redeeming his mind and redeeming his soul the way that all of us need to be redeemed. He can't fully represent us if he's not fully human. And so we can't fall into the error that when we look at the baby Jesus, when we behold the glory of God, that somehow it's just God in a human suit. That it's just God um, hiding himself inside human flesh. That it really is a human nature fully all the way through. And we saw in scripture, if you recall the things I talked about, that we know that he did have a human mind. He did have a human spirit. He grew in wisdom and his spirit was troubled. And he was tempted, but he did not sin. And so the church councils rejected this idea that, that the way you figure this out is that God just put on a human suit and really inside it was God. He's just partly human. Secondly, Jesus was not separate persons in one body. This is Nestorianism, and this is 428 AD. So we're over 400 years later. This is idea that the human and the divine persons were somehow cohabitating the same body, that he was like a split personality. You know, like if you saw Lord of the Rings, like Gollum, you know, good and bad and, and two personalities and, and, and kind of wrestling with each other. But, but Jesus never talks about himself this way. Every time Jesus talks, he just says, I. He never says, we. And in the Trinity, there's just the three persons of the Godhead. There's not four. There isn't this fourth sort of tagging along personality of, of the human side of, of Jesus' you know, nature. And so Nestorianism was kind of thrown out the window. They, they rejected that as well. And then thirdly, Jesus was not a merging of two natures. This is Eutychianism. All these great words. This is about 440 AD. So we're 400 years later. This idea that the human is merged into the divine. And, and Eutyches basically proposed that the human nature was absorbed into the divine nature. And he used a, an example of like paint or like ink getting dropped into a pitcher of water. And so you have this big divine pitcher of water and this little human drop of ink. 
and it kind of merges in, and that the two are kind of blended. And this was the worst idea of all three, because you lose divinity and you lose humanity. You lose both natures that you need. (laughs) So that's like the worst idea to think about it. And so the church rejected that as well, that they couldn't be somehow less than divine or more than human. So we can't think about God's divinity and his humanity that way. So how do we think about, how are they properly reconciled? By thinking of the miracle of Emmanuel. By acknowledging the miracle of what God did. That we cannot comprehend how these two natures coexist. If you combine the specific texts of Christ's deity and humanity, the specific scriptures which talk about his human nature and his divine nature, just think on these things and reconcile them in his, as your thoughts and just dwell on the miracle of this, of Christ come in human flesh, God in human flesh. First of all, Jesus' human nature ascended into heaven and is no longer in the world, but his divine nature is everywhere present. So his human nature rose in Acts and it'll return just as we saw it come. And that's true because scripture says that that's true. But what is also true is that his divine nature is everywhere present. And so he is both at the right hand of God, and he is both present where two or three of us are gathered in his name. At the same time. Irreconcilable in our minds, but reconciled in the unique nature of Jesus. Secondly, that Jesus was 30 years old, but he also eternally existed. Luke 3.23, you're not even 50 years old. John 1. 1 to 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is 30 years old, and he's eternal. Thirdly, Jesus was weak and tired in his human nature, as we talked about, but in his divine nature, he was omnipotent, that he upholds the universe, both at the same time. That while Jesus, as I mentioned, was asleep in the boat in Matthew 8, 24, he is also continually carrying along all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. You have to take Matthew 8.24, and you have to take Hebrews 1.3, and you have to put them together, and you have to hold in your, in your mind the complete glory, the complete awesomeness, the complete miracle of Jesus is that he's both of those things. And to try to merge them or say that it's just God in a suit or to do any of those other things is to diminish the glory of what God accomplished in the miracle of coming in human flesh. Or fifthly, that Jesus' human nature died, Luke 23, 46. He died, went into the grave, but his divine nature did not die, but was able to raise himself from the dead. So his human nature passed away, and his spirit left his body and went to be with the Lord, just like any human spirit would, be, would do. But then in his divine nature, he was able to resurrect himself from the dead, reunite his spirit and his body into the new resurrection body, and he's the only one that has one right now. Understand that, right? Lazarus was la- raised from the dead. You know, Paul raised a girl from the dead. There were people that were raised from the dead before, but none of them were raised in their redeemed resurrection body the way Jesus is resurrected. And so that's the body we're looking forward to, that new body where you can touch the hands and the feet, the flesh and bone that is Jesus' human nature in a redeemed resurrection body. And so he did die in his human nature and his soul and his spirit, which was a human soul and a human spirit, and it left his body and it went to be with the Father. But then in his divine nature, He reunited them into his resurrection body, the first fruit of brothers and sisters to come. And then to preserve the reality of Jesus' human nature, we have to say that Jesus had two wills, a human will and a divine will, and two centers of consciousness, a human consciousness and a divine consciousness. 
and so that the location of will and consciousness is in our nature. And the reason we say that is because, as I talked about, his human consciousness did not know the time of his return in Mark 13, but his divine consciousness knew all things in John 16.30. And so you have to take these two scriptures and say it's true in his, div- in his human nature that Jesus did not know everything, didn't know the time of his return, but it's also true that he knows everything. And so you have to reconcile those scriptures in the humanity and the divinity of Christ. Jesus, as a human, was tempted. His human will could be tempted, but his divine will could not be tempted. James 1.13 says God cannot be tempted. But his human nature could be tempted. And anything either nature does, this is the important thing in the reconciliation, is that we have to recognize that anything either nature does, either the human nature or the divine nature, the person of Christ could be said to be doing it. It's like if I were to say, again, this is just a faint example, I could say, right now I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm looking at Dave, right? So I can say, I'm looking at Dave. Well, right now, my foot right now has nothing to do with me looking at Dave. My eyes are looking at Dave, but my hands and my feet have nothing to do with me looking at Dave. But I can say, I'm looking at Dave, right? That's normal how we talk. And so when Jesus says, I'm doing this, or I'm doing that, or I'm able to do this, or I'm able to do that, whether it's his human nature or his divine nature, he's able to say, I am doing it. That Jesus is one nature to get away from those three mistakes of trying to say he's God in a human body or the natures are merged or the, or the personalities are separate. I talked about that because it's important. It's important that we think accurately about the miracle of God with us. And they put it all together in a creed. The Chalcedonian Creed. And the creed was adopted in the Fourth Ecumenical Council, which you will forget. There won't be a test. Don't worry. But 451, this is like 400 years after, they they finally got a statement that they could make it sound like this is what it sounds like. And so I'm going to read you the creed. It's so important. Our holy fathers, our, our, our church fathers wrote these creeds for us. It's so important that we learn from them. This is what they wrote. We then, following the holy fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, manhood, truly God and truly man, a rational soul and body, co-substantial with the Father according to the Godhead and co-substantial, being of the same substance, with us according to the manhood. In all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before the ages, of the Father according to the Godhead, that's his divine nature, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, mother of God according to the manhood, that's his human nature, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, even though it is confusing, <laughs> inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union. In other words, you don't lose anything by uniting them, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring at the same time in one person, in one substance, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, And only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. That's the miracle of the incarnation. That is the miracle that we behold in the baby Jesus. God and man together. 
And so in summary, you think, why is this important? Well, why go into all of this? This is the job of like egg-headed professors at universities and seminaries. They think about these highfalutin things. I don't need to know all of this stuff to love Jesus. You're right. You don't need to know all of that stuff to love Jesus. But I think it's important because if we do not think rightly about every word that Scripture speaks to us about who God is, then we are missing a part of the miracle and the glory of God. And so there isn't one part of Scripture, there isn't one piece of the miracle of who Jesus is that I want to overlook. I want to look at every aspect of the miracle of who Jesus is and learn as much as I can about it so that I'm not lost in my own imagining or my own clever ideas or even just lost in the apathy of saying, well, I love Jesus and that's enough. And it is enough. But if you really love Jesus, if you really love somebody, you want to know as much about them as you can know so that you can give them the glory and the honor and the respect for everything that they are, not just parts of it. So you don't have to be some sort of high-powered theologian or need a high IQ or have a passion for reading in order to love God. No, I'm not saying that. It's not your IQ or your love of learning, but it's the love of God and to know the miracle of what he did at Christmas time. To know the miracle of what it took for him to come into our human flesh. To give him glory for precisely who he is and not something that we imagine. I'll give you an example. I can, I can love a Johnny Erickson painting. I can look at a painting by Johnny Erickson and I say, that's a great painting and I love it. But if I read a book about Johnny and her life, and I know what's behind that painting, then I can love that painting all the more. I can honor and respect and give glory to the men and women who die for the freedom of Canada, whether it's in the Second World War or the Korean War or right now in peacekeeping. But if I read a book or I watch a documentary on the sacrifice of their lives, then I can cherish all the more and give them glory for the freedom that we have. And so that's why I do this today. Because I, I can love God for what he did and I can love Jesus for who he is. But if I really get the miracle of God in human flesh and everything it means that he be human and everything it means that he be divine, then my love for him and my glory for him deepens tremendously. So the incarnation, the miracle of God becoming a man, I think is the greatest miracle by far, by far without question. The fact that God, the divine, the pure, the holy, the righteous, all-powerful, eternal creator could find a way to share his nature with our fallen, broken, weak, limited, and temporary nature in order that he could accomplish our salvation, that is the miracle. Creating a universe seems easy compared to that to me. The best and greatest miracle is in the baby Jesus. To provide for us a human nature, a human mind, a human soul, that suffered everything that we have suffered so that it could be redeemed as ours will be redeemed. So that we have a new body, flesh and bone, that can exist in his presence forever, that redeemed body. What a miracle. What a miracle. That is the glory that we gather around to behold at the manger at Christmas. So when you see a nativity scene and you see a manger, that's what you're beholding, that miracle. That is what the angels announced. Unto us a child is born who is Christ, the Messiah, yeah, and he's Lord. He's God. A human savior that all of Israel was waiting for, but this human savior was completely and unexpectedly their God. The God of the universe was going to save them himself. That is joy to the world.
And so we have to get this good news out to everyone, that there is a miracle at Christmas, that there is good news of great joy, that there's a rock-bottom foundation at the bottom of all of our hope, and it is Christ Messiah who is God. That's the miracle of Christmas.